Oh, hi, I want to welcome everyone to Poetry and Conversation. Tonight, though, is really special. We're very excited to be featuring James Arthur and Joseph Harrison. Um, the plan is that each of them is going to read, I think, for about 15 minutes, and then we'll have some Q&A at the table here, um, and they'll read some closing poems. And I'm just going to begin by introducing James Arthur. James Arthur's poems have appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry, The New York Review of Books, The New Republic, and The American Poetry Review. He has received the Amy Lowell Traveling Poetry Scholarship, a Wallace Stegner Fellowship, a Hodder Fellowship, and a Discovery the Nation Prize. His first book, Charms Against Lightning, was published by Copper Canyon Press. He lives in Baltimore and teaches in the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins. During 2016, he will be the Fulbright Distinguished Scholar in Creative Writing at Queen's University, Belfast. James Arthur's poems are full of surprises. They stun us by revealing the sheer randomness of our lives, the lightning that does or does not strike at any time. Another surprise is the generosity that the poems show towards the categories by which we ward off chaos, the charms we make against lightning or the semicolons we use to build links between dusk and darkness. Even between those two, there are gangways, movable bridges shipped to shore, small therefores. And in a world of marvelous sounds, visuals, and humor, where the kitchen weeps onion because the cook is dead, the greatest surprise may be how randomness becomes a delight. Please help me to welcome James Arthur. Thank you very much, Shailene, and thank you for having me. I'm going to begin with some poems from my book, Charms Against Lightning. And uh, um, uh, <laughs> and a lot of the poems in the book concern the theme of wandering. Um, and so this, I, I was at a kind of an unsettled uh, phase of my life when I wrote a lot of the poems in the book. And uh, I kept moving around from place to place, imagining that if I could just find the right city to live in, um, it would sort out all the other problems in my life. Um, and so this this uh, first poem is about the search for that, that city that may not exist. And it's uh, called Utopia. And I mean Utopia both in the sense that we normally use the word paradise and in the sense of no place. Utopia. Finally, he's found his own city, a postcard place that anyone would like, backlit by the romance of an unknown history. Here, sheets and hair perfume the air. Every gate is hammered silver, every song a song and dance and the balloon seller bears her ivory shoulder for a kiss. The man 
who's spent enormously to feed a fantasy of being from no place, spent what he had and borrowed more, now is completely happy, except for an idea of an idea that he cannot outpace, that somehow he may have missed something that he should not have missed. Though no doubt this is better than lying on a cold suburban beach, admiring stars so far away he'd be seeing them as they were before the dawn of human speech. This is another country, not an ordinary place, where a man, no matter how exceptional he felt, would finally be erased. The next poem um, draws on the biblical story of Cain and Abel. Um, as many of you probably know, after Cain murders his brother Abel, according to tradition, he goes east into Nod. And for a long time, scholars assumed that Nod must be the name of some country that no longer exists. And it's only in the 20th century with the growing understanding of the Hebrew language that scholars have come to realize that Nod meant something totally different. So this poem is called The Land of Nod. Growing up, I barely knew the Bible, but read and reread the part when Cain drifted east or was drawn that way into a place of desolation, the land of Nod, there to begin with a wife of unknown origin, another race of men under the mark of God. As a boy, I thought Nod would be a place where the blue scillas would bloom gray, a country of the rack and screw, the serrated sword, where the very serving cups were bone. As a grown man, I've heard that Nod never was a nation, of Cain's offspring or anyone, but a mistranslation of wander. So Cain could go wherever and be a Nod. Far more than in God, I believe in Cain, who destroyed his own brother, and therefore, in any city, could have his wish and be alone. Uh, when I was, uh, well, a lot of the poems in the book are um, are increasingly desperate uh, love poems. <laughs> uh, for um, I was in a uh, sort of a doomed situation that was never going to get any better. Um, uh, uh, pining away for this other poet. Um, this is one of the sweeter poems addressed to that person, um, and it's. Uh, it was. It was. It's set in Italy. We were traveling around in Italy together as part of a group. Um, the poem's called "Terranean Sea." Your eyelashes. There's what I know about Anna Capri, and spelling out time in flashes, a lighthouse, and the bright houses drowning down by the sea. We swam. We drank. 
we passed a bottle on the waves in the dark. In Pompeii that was buried by fire, you ate smoke from my tongue. Your skin, your skin, a cinder tree's shade. A polyglot boy sold parasols. There were dogs alive and dead. A three-legged mutt turning circles. No omen, no omen we knew. In a sisi where broad and shallow steps cross-cut and veered from street to street, we feared the holy orders. In Tivoli we leaned on a balustrade. At Frascati were cooled by a spigot. Why does the tourist mind always linger? It's no good, I know. But you are my eyes' temple, and I've adored you where you stood. Um, the next poem is addressed to the same person. It's in a different vein. Uh, it's called Independence. And it's, as you'll hear, it's set on a July the 4th uh, celebration in Seattle. Independence. We are famous friends, here to get drunk, stoned, here for the fireworks, the night of Independence Day. Ovals spawning Xeroxed ovals across a gassy sky, each boom pursuing its fiery halo. Happy marriage, someone cries. I do. I don't. I might someday. Here's to the stars and bars, to my bed, and you having nowhere else to go. Bring a kiss, not your clothes. To the sky, bright as a bottle shard. To optimism, and all the states, even the boring ones. I know you, the skin graft on your cheek, your lost dog, your can't sleep. I might as well be your own hand. Jesus Christ, take off his ring. Keep it off and put a ring on me. Let's see how we're doing here. Um, I'm going to read one more from the book and then a few newer poems. Um, uh this next poem has taken me more time to write than any other poem that I've written. It took seven years from first draft to the last. Uh, it, and it's the occasion for it. I was in Seattle one day getting pelted by the rain, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to go on living. And uh was thinking in a pretty concentrated way about not going on living. And uh, and. All of a sudden, uh, someone went by on an ergonomic bicycle, or uh, also known as a recumbent bicycle, so you know, a bicycle in which the bicyclist leans back and his feet are elevated up front. And um, it seems outrageous to me, because I was a young, self-absorbed man. It seemed outrageous to me that I could be so sad and someone else could just be riding his stupid-looking bicycle wherever he was going. Um, and I... I felt sure that I had something to say about it, but it took me a long time. Um, this poem's called Distracted by an Ergonomic Bicycle. On a rainy morning in the worst year of my life, 
as icy islets shelled the street. I shared a tremor with a Doberman leashed to a post. We two were all the world until a bicyclist shot by, riding like a backward berth, feet first, in level, gentle ease, with the season's hard breath between his teeth. The rain was almost ice, the sky mild and pale. I saw a milk carton bobbing by on a stream of melting sleet. A bicyclist. A bicyclist. He rode away to his home, I guess. I went home where I undressed, left my jacket where it fell, went straight to bed, and slept for two days straight. But those clicking wheels kept clicking in my head, and though I can't say why, I felt not only not myself, but that I'd never been, that I was that man I hardly saw hurling myself into the blast, and that everything I passed, dog, rain, cold, the other guy, I left in my wake like afterbirth. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read just a couple, just a couple uh, newer ones. Um, uh, something that's changed in my life since um, since the publication of Charms Against Lightning is that I've become a father. So uh, I've been searching for ways to write about fatherhood. I, it's kind of a, a project that I've undertaken reluctantly. I wasn't sure that I ever wanted to write a book of poems about being a dad. Uh, but I, I feel that I can't really avoid the subject uh, either because it has changed my emotional landscape so uh, drastically, I think, I hope. Um, this poem is called Goodnight Moon, and it has a number of references to Margaret Weiss Brown's Goodnight Moon, which is, in case anyone doesn't know it, it's a, it's a kind of a lullaby to all the things of the world. Uh, an old lady whispering hush, a bowl full of mush, a cow jumping over the moon. So, Goodnight Moon. I used to be as unsentimental as anyone could be. Now I'm almost absurd, a clown carrying you on my shoulders around and around Palmer Square through the cold night wind as stores lock up and begin closing down. Good night, fair trade coffee. Good night, Prada shoes. Good night soon, my little son. You're a toothy, two-foot-something sumo, a giddy, violent elf jabbing your finger at the moon which you've begun noticing in the last week or two moom moom for you the word ends with a mumming as it begins for me beginnings and endings are getting hard to tell apart there was another child your mom and I conceived who'd now be reading and teaching you to read who we threw away when he or she was smaller than a watermelon seed. The chairs, the domestic bears, the clocks, the socks, the house. Once again, a strange cow springs from the green ground 
beginning the enormous leap that will carry her above the moon. And the thank you. Um, and the last one before I before I uh, yield the stage here is um, uh, based on my first trip to a Renaissance festival um, last year. Um, it's called Renaissance Fair, but not so much the Renaissance as the Middle Ages. Not so much the Middle Ages as the olden times. Baronets and ladies walk the streets of this mock medieval village, mingling with wizards and with Viking raiders. Vendors hawk handy crafts of colored glass and crystal. A druid in the coffee line is eating a bag of deep-fried pickles. Now come the horses for the joust, hung with colors, prancing. Now come the knights, some long of tooth and broad-bottomed in the saddle, but knights anyway, of equal parts, gentleness, and power. A dream of Camelot at its apogee, where chivalry is figured as a flower. The knights spur forward into a theater of battle. But Camelot would not be Camelot were it not unsound in some way that no enchantment could ever mend. Alas for all the pageantry that must eventually stutter to an end, for the scotch eggs and the crab cakes and the slow-roasted mutton shoulder. Alas for the beer tent and the dads in chainmail pushing their kids uphill in strollers, to cars and SUVs waiting to carry their owners back past gas stations and off-ramps to jobs in Baltimore or D.C. or over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge to the pretty little towns that pack the eastern shore. Eight weeks of the year, the Renaissance is here. There's really nothing much for the other 44. Camelot is what you feel nostalgic for even before it fades. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. That was wonderful. Um, okay, now I'm going to introduce Joe, Joseph Harrison. Joseph Harrison is the author of Someone Else's Name, Identity Theft, and Shakespeare's Horse, all published by Wayweiser Press. Some of his early poems are anthologized in The Fly and the Ointment. His honors include an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and a fellowship in poetry from the Guggenheim Foundation. He is the senior American editor for Wayweiser Press and the editor of the Hecht Prize Anthology. He lives in Baltimore. The sonnet that Joseph Harrison's latest book is named after, Shakespeare's Horse, is for me a terrific example of his work. It employs meter and rhyme in magical ways. It's witty in every possible sense of that word, and it plays exuberantly with the literary tradition. It's also a celebration of the horse that never stops running, the poetic imagination. In another poem about poetry, Joseph Harrison writes to a nameless person, a sort of everyman, about a moment when your heart sang and a deep, addictive music colored the world for you and sent you looking. 
I am sure he will give us some deep, addictive music tonight. Please help me to welcome Joseph Harrison. Thank you very much for that, Shailene. Thank you all for coming this evening. Not the most pleasant evening to go out, even for a poetry reading. Um, it's a great pleasure to read here at the Pratt and a great pleasure to read with my friend James Arthur, whose work I admire so much. I'm going to start with a poem called The Sight. Welcome to The Sight. There is no need for you to furnish personal information, financial or otherwise. We have all that already in your file, which activated the moment you logged on and contains, as well, full documentation of errors you've long forgotten, early embarrassments, rank ineptitudes you've wiped your record clean of, but not ours, humiliations suffered and meted out, crass self-indulgence, curt ingratitude, all cataloged, were there reason to produce evidence in the course of these proceedings. Cooperation is, you will admit, the best route, not to say the only one. You have a simple password now required for everything. To form it, just insert your name and date of birth into the code John Doe 060666, The Fool. Should you ever be forced to leave your screen for longer than the standard daily allowance, three 20-minute breaks, six hours at night, by medical emergency or fire, or receive a privileged day of personal leave to attend a funeral or consult a surgeon, you'll need it to log back on and resume your life. Here is your list of friends. A few you know. A few know you. Most of them we've selected using compatibility algorithms. Here is your pictorial representation. The eyes, the hair, the smile by which you'll be identified as you from this day forward. Better, you must admit, than you as you were. And all who love you will be happy you look as they could have wished you all along. We trust you will not fail to recognize this altogether flattering transformation as one more reason not to leave your screen. Not that you'll ever want to. Virtually every form of entertainment is here at fingertip control. Travel the earth to jungle, reef, savanna, glacial peak swept over in 3D with background music from our extensive, well, you get the picture. Plus videos, movies, concerts, galleries, sports, books, graphic, and otherwise. Perpetual parties, family reunions, all here to see the menu. And the games, of course. The games go on and on, fast and violent, all the way up the ladder, and ratcheting effects to boost you again. We've signed you up for all the latest versions. These are the only available arrangements. You understand, we think, of course, 
We thought so. Deactivate your will with just a keystroke. Thank you. I wrote the next poem after hearing a friend of mine who is an artist tell the story of creating his first work of art when he was a little boy. It's called Portrait of the Artist as a Young Kid. There they were in the basement, the whole troop of Cub Scouts, including his brothers, instructed by attending mothers in projects spread out on the ping-pong table right at eye level. He was five and out of the loop, where he could barely see a jumbled activity. He was unable to join, line up, and come alive. As each initiate was shown how to fold a reader's digest into a cone, which soon spray-painted green, then sprinkled with glitter and cotton strands, And just like that, somebody's life expands. Was this the coolest thing he'd seen? Emerged from their clumsy hands a Christmas tree. What strange, imagined lands, what inner sea right then conceived their dark geography and left the issued world behind, their black maps rising in his mind, Territories, perilous and wild, whose powers would demand oblation, then came to be, in firmaments apart, the regions of his heart. The scheming child, always beyond representation, had a vague notion what to do. He made, with cotton balls and Elmer's glue, a shapeless pile of gloop proudly affixing to the floor off in a corner behind the basement door. So what he wasn't in the group? He'd seen what life was for and made a start. This thing was his and more. It was his art. Thank you. And this is a little poem called, Oh. When love herself came to me, framed by the classroom door, her presence shot straight through me. My heart dropped to the floor. Nothing phantasmal slew me. What eyes and hair and skin could do, they did to do me, helpless and hopeless in. Oh, when her news came to me, Ovarian, 44, her absence echoed through me, ringing my hollowed core. I have a friend in Italy who has a house in the Sabine Hills north of Rome, where he's built a new house, actually, on old family property using the stones from the old house. One of those kinds of stones is called sponga. 
His farm is near where the Latin poet Horace had his farm a couple of millennia ago. So I wrote my friend a Horatian epistle of sorts. That kind of poem is supposed to give advice to the person you're writing to, telling them how they should live their life better than they are. But I didn't know what to tell this guy because he seemed to be doing pretty well without any advice from me. This is called To Ricardo Durante. My friend Ricardo, you were a lucky fellow to have a hilltop farm in the Sabine Hills where you raise olives and figs and lettuces and live with your eager dog and a couple of cats. A wise man, too, to leave the city behind and give up teaching down there and work from home, translating poems and novels and whatever you like. You've built an airy new house out of old stone on the old spot. It's modest, but ample, too, fit for your purpose and friendly to visitors. Even quite ancient things can be put to new use, becoming timeless and contemporary. Conglomerate, limestone, and sponga have served you well, as well as they served your ancestors way back when. On days when a cool wind combs the leaves of your elms and ripples your split-by-lightning mulberry, and the jasmine your mother planted as a girl billows and luffs like the hopes of the very young for whom every season is fresh and the hours move slowly, as a caravan of clouds casts Salasano continually in and out of light and shadow, you can still see, in the distance, Mount Sorate, just as the poet did from a different angle when it was inches taller and covered in snow. Who needs an apartment in Rome when you have all this? Who needs to be sipping Jacquet or Amaroni when the Rosso your cousin Spartaco provides comes in huge jugs and gets better the more you drink it? Although I believe this poem should tell you something, any advice I might give you would be superfluous. You're already living the way I would urge you to. I can only think of a single trivial warning Beware of your nasty old neighbor down the road. He cheats at pool like a little bearless coney. Thank you. Some baseball historians believe that the knuckleball was invented by a man named Charles Lear, who pitched in the National League a century ago. He was a college graduate at a time when most ball players weren't. They were ruffians and toughs and fought a lot and threw the games if the gamblers gave them enough money. This is King Lear. Of course, some wise guy would nickname him King. That Princeton rookie with his college ring pitching for Cincinnati who finished last. He couldn't hit or run, 
or throw it fast and didn't binge or brawl or anything. Just floated a knuckleball they swung right past. A player's tail. The spotlight of renown switched off. Your yesterday's ticket out of town and back to Charles. He hurt his arm next year and he was gone like luck or penny beer. And when an old man's mourners set him down in wind and rain, who knew he was King Lear? It's probably, I'll admit, not the best idea to give one's own short poems the titles of great masterworks of Western literature. This one's called Hamlet. It's quiet here. A stoic rectitude props up the weather-pummeled citizens, craggy yet almost cheerful. Uniform gray granite cottages, precipitous and sturdy, make the most of things. The wind does all the talking hereabouts, and who would think to think about the universe? Their certainties define them, not their doubts. And I'll conclude with the title poem, which Shailene was kind enough to mention. Um, one account, probably apocryphal, has it that Shakespeare got his start in the theater business handling the horses that playgoers would ride to the plays, making him the 16th century equivalent of a parking valet. This probably wasn't the case, but he would have ridden horses frequently, particularly going back and forth between Stratford, where his family was, in London. This is Shakespeare's horse. He was a man knew horses, so he moved as wills were won, and all was won at will, and hand with such slight handling as improved those parks and parcels where we're racing still, pounding like pairs of hooves or pairs of hearts through woodland scenes and lush dramatic spaces with all our parts in play to play all parts in pace with pace to put us through his paces. Ages have passed. All channels channel what imagined these green plots and gave them names down to the smallest role, if, and, and, but. What flies the time, the globe gone up in flames, what thunders back to ring the ringing course and runs like the streaking will, like Shakespeare's horse. Thank you. All right, thank you, James. Thank you, Joseph. Um, we're going to open up for a Q&A before we finish up with a few more poems. And just as a reminder, this event will be podcasted, sound only. So if you have a question, 
Um, just raise your hand and I will bring the mic over to you. So. I don't think I need a mic, but um, just wondering what living poets you like and why. Is that to both of us? Yeah. Um, I um, I've gone th- I've gone through a few different um, phases so far, and I different I've attached myself to different writers at different times. Um, uh, well, he's just recently no longer a living poet, but Philip Levine was huge for me when I uh, was first writing. Uh, W.S. Merwin is still alive, uh, and he's been important to me. Um, uh, more recently, I've become uh, very interested in the poems of Simon Armitage, uh, Les Murray. Um, two, I went to school at the University of Washington, and two of my professors there um, are wonderful. I mean, I had a lot of professors there who are wonderful poets, but two in particular have, were important to me as, as influences, uh, Richard Kenny and Heather McHugh. But I'm, I'm always trying to remain open to any poem or poet that can teach me something. Yeah, it, it would be a long list for, for me as well. Um, there are Older poets, poets of my father's generation, who've meant a lot to me for a very long time. Uh, Richard Wilbur, who amazingly is still going um, in his 90s at this point, is just an absolutely magnificent poet. Um, and, you know, I mean, everything that seems to come from him is just perfect. And, but another poet whom I greatly admire, who's doing much more experimental work, is, is John Ashbery, who has been... Um, upsetting and confounding readers since the 1950s. Um, Avant-garde poetry tends to have a brief shelf life. You have your avant-garde moment, as Ginsburg did or as O'Hara did, and then the art moves on. Ashbery is incredible because he's managed to remain avant-garde during a career that's, that's, that's banned forever at this point. He's been avant-garde for 70 years, and I just think that that's a sort of gravity-defying feat. Um, the late Mark Strand, was, uh, to, to mention the recently passed, was someone whose work meant a huge amount to me. But, but I think there's some wonderful poets um, now uh, my age or a little older in mid-career. Gertrude Schnackenberg is, is someone who I think is an absolutely fantastic poet. Um, James's colleague, Mary Jo Salter, uh, I, think, I think is a wonderful poet. And, um, and, they're, they're, and then there's some younger poets who, who I think are astonishing, who are a bit younger than I am. Maury Creech, I, I think, is a fantastic poet. Or Dora Malik, to name another colleague of James's at Hopkins. And James himself would be on that list. Um, are, are younger poets whose work I really, really uh, wait, uh, await with great eagerness and, and find it very exciting to see where they're, where they're going to go. I, I think American poetry is very rich at the moment. And, you know, no, there's no one out there who's read nearly enough of it. I mean, there, there, there are numbers, who knows who's out there whom you haven't encountered, um, who's publishing in small presses or small magazines, or has some great, ma- or has some great manuscript that hasn't found its way to, to the light yet. So it's a very exciting field, I think. Um, and, and, there, and, there, and there are many, many poets who, whom I admire greatly, and that's a list that's growing all the time. 
So, great work, first of all. I really enjoyed both of you. Thank um, you. Thank you. I'm personally curious as to your background. How long have you been writing? How did you start? Uh, I have wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. Uh, my earliest specific memory of feeling that way was when my dad read The Lord of the Rings to me when I was eight. Uh, and that um, I was so sad when it was over. Uh, you know, I mean, it was an undertaking. It went on for months, you know, uh, reading it in every night in, you know, half-hour installments. And when it was done, I remember thinking that being able to live in that, in that world, you know, in the world of books and words and stories would just would be the perfect life. Uh, but I... Uh, I think I began focusing my attention on poetry. Speci- I mean, I really, when I was 19, I would have told you that I was going to be a screenwriter. And when I was like 22, I would have told you that I was going to be a novelist. And I was kind of disappointed to find out that uh, poetry was actually my, my calling because it's the least lucrative way to make a living as a writer. Um, and it kind of dashed all my dreams of fame and riches. But, um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I just never was very good at writing fiction. Um, and uh, and when I started writing poetry, I just felt free. I felt, I felt, um, I just, all of a sudden, I felt that I was writing like myself uh, in a way that I had never felt that I was doing when I was writing, trying to write fiction. Yeah. And that was about 15 years ago, I guess, that I started started turning my attention seriously to poetry. I think a, a lot of poets do start writing when they're very young, or and and I'm not one of those. Um, I I was uh, drawn to poetry. I think as a high school student, reading the Romantic poets, reading Wordsworth and Shelley and Keats, and I studied a lot of poetry in in college, but I didn't write it. It was the experience of reading Wallace Stevens in college though that really made me want to be a poet I felt that when I was reading Stevens I had an aesthetic experience a coherent aesthetic experience but one that I couldn't summarize or paraphrase and this fascinated me and made me want to do something similar so it really wasn't until I was out of college that I started writing and I wrote quite a bit for two or three years and then I decided to go back to school and become an English professor and was in the latter stages of that process when I just started writing poems again and just realized that this was what I needed to do. You know, that writing critical essays, writing, doing scholarly work just was not going to give me the kind of satisfaction that writing poems um, would. And so at that point, when I was about 30 years old, so a little over a quarter century ago, I decided just to commit to doing that and make that what I did. Um, and I've, I've worked at it ever since. Um, so um, it, it took me a little longer to go there than, than some writers. But, um, but once, I, once I got hooked on it, there was, there was no going back. Nothing, nothing, else, nothing else gave me the same thrill that, that, that writing poems did. You're welcome. Uh, this question was spurred on by one of uh, Joseph's yeah. poems, like the humorous internet dystopia one that you read. Mm-hmm. And um, I was struck by the fact that you talk about the internet kind of obliquely, but it's pretty obviously the internet, um, but also about Shakespeare. And you presented 
the internet as like a system of control almost, mm -hmm. like the anti-willpower kind of. But I was wondering if you saw any continuities between like media in the Shakespeare's time and new forms of media and where poetry stands in that spectrum. And you're welcome to answer that as well from your point. Yeah, I, I'm, that's an interesting question, and and I don't I don't mean to to to, <clears throat> to slam the internet, which I which I now use <laughs> like everybody else does, and now you know you you think how on earth did I find this stuff out 20 years ago? I would have had to go to a library. Um, Poems sort of create their own space, so so you know the the and I shouldn't say that in the Pratt, should I? But but I'm sure the but but there's a lot of stuff that's that's done much more quickly um, because you can look it up and you also can put things in poems that you wouldn't be able to put uh, wouldn't have been able to put 15 or 20 years ago. You can you can you can put. Uh, uh, an epigraph in Italian, and you can know, and you know that the reader can just type that in and find it. Um, so, so, but but the, that poem seemed to want to be a sort of paranoid fantasy about being controlled, um, and and that's part of our sometimes our experience. We do wonder who's who's watching where we go on 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 the internet. I, I think the question about sort of parallel technologies is, is interesting because. Um, Shakespeare's time was a time of, 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 of great and sweeping change, you know, in writing and the way writing was produced. He was writing right at the point when, when, um, when book production had suddenly become much more sophisticated, when, when um, the uh, English middle, uh, an emerging educated class of readers were, were making, making it much more possible to publish books and, 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 and get them read, when the theaters had been restarted. Um, there had been no public theaters in Europe since uh, Roman times, when, when they opened the theater in London. In, outside London in 1576, so I do think that that sort of that there was he he came along right in the middle of what was a real paradigm shift when the ways people were writing and and reading were changing pretty dramatically. Now they do change throughout history, but obviously with the, with the with the with the growth of the internet, we're looking at a serious paradigm shift. We write differently. Um, we read differently, and um, that certainly is going to affect art. Um, it already has affected art, and it's going to affect art in ways that we can't yet anticipate or, or, or understand. Yeah, I agree with that. I was. Um, I think, um, you know, those of us who who remember a time before the internet, or before before we were users of the internet, are are making our own reckoning with it and thinking about it and writing about it and wondering how it's affecting us and how it's shaping our imaginations in ways, you know, I think not whether it's good or bad, but just, just, it just is shaping our imaginations um, and is affecting the, the range of stimuli that come into our lives and affecting how we think and how we move from one idea to another. And I think a lot of I think a lot of poets are, and artists of all kinds are consciously and unconsciously responding to it or trying to describe it or thinking about what it means to them. But I also think that um, there are going to be... The, a big part of the change is, you know, um, 
my, my son's now four, you know, poets of his generation are not, never going to remember. Um, the internet will just be a, I mean, perhaps, perhaps they will see some big transformation that will make the internet obsolete, but they, my son will never remember a time without the internet, and the way that affects how people of his generation think and write, um, who knows? I can't imagine. I'm, I hope to be around long enough to find out. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Harrison, when you say we read differently, what do you mean by that? Well, um, people now read books on their phones. People read online. I mean, I, I, we, we, I run a big poetry contest, and we used to get hundreds of manuscripts that would come to my P.O. box. Now we read them online. They submit online, and we read online. So, and I do think it changes. I mean, I think looking at a screen is different from holding something in your hand, you know, and, and, turn, and turning the pages. So I really do think that, that we read differently in that sense, and, and at least just in the physical act of reading, and also the, the, the quick access to, to, to information, um, the ease with which you can track something down or look something up does, does, does change the way we read. It certainly has changed the way I read some. Um, maybe not in a fundamental sense. I mean, I th think one is still, in some ways, left alone with the words and the sentences, and have and has, and those knock about in one's head. I'm not saying, it, but but it does alter things, and and there is a difference between reading on a screen, you know, and reading in a book. You, you're you're you're, hold, you're holding in your hands. I think. Well, we all interpret differently anyway. And, and always have and and um, so uh, and I don't know I mean I think it would be I wouldn't think that you know the way you interpret Shakespeare changes depending on whether you're reading something online or holding something in your hand but I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't know I actually don't read much online other than for the contest I, I still I still um, like to have the physical object of, of the book, but I'm aware that many people have made have made the shift over, and and I, I'm not uh, I don't know if it affects interpretation or not. Um, okay. It's an interesting query, though. Yeah. We'll do one more question. Well, first, I wanted to say um, that I almost didn't come, and I'm glad I did because it was mesmerizing. Well, thank you. you. So thank you. Um, so. If I were a writer and I were exposing myself the way you do as writers, I would find it would take a huge amount of courage. So I'm wondering, does it take courage for you to expose yourself through your writing? And if so, how do you overcome that in sharing it on paper and also sharing it um, verbally? For me, it's... Um it's a matter of stepping into a role. I'm a. I'm really an introvert. Um, I get. I find. I find. It, I'm quite shy in, in groups of people, and uh, um, so I feel that when I get up at a microphone, I'm just stepping into a role. And much. I, mean, I know. I. I'm a teacher too, and I feel that when I step at the front of the classroom, I'm just occupying a role, um, and. Uh, Though my poems are personal, and though the, you know the stories, that, the things that seem to be 
narrating my life are narrating my life and the stories in them are you know true uh from my perspective at least um i don't quite think of them that way i think of them as um when i'm writing them they're in when i'm when i'm writing a poem for the first time and finding out what the poem is going to say to me it's intensely personal and it and it feels extremely like an extremely intimate correspondence between me and the blank page but by the time i've worked over a poem a lot of times i really you know really revised it a number of times and committed it to memory and recited it a, a bunch of times um it still contains the original feelings that it contained for me when i wrote it but it becomes also a little more abstract um and in some ways what i'm the intense emotional part of the experience of reading for me is actually sort of looking around the room making eye contact with people sort of um responding to emotional or psychological or social cues that i get from the audience that's actually the part of the reading that really um is where i feel most vulnerable i i would i think i would have a similar answer i mean to me the the space of reading poems is a public space you know it's it's a it's a performative space like james i have those moments looking at the audience where i think uh oh <laughs> did anyone get it? they should have laughed at that moment <laughs> and they looked like i just said something very very somber um but i i think probably we're a little uh, i'm a little different from james in in that um i wouldn't say that my work is devoid of autobiographical elements but they're uh, they're s- sort of deflected i mean when i put the first person pronoun into the poem which i don't actually do that often um it's not necessarily me to me that first person pronoun is just you know a, a like a variable in an equation it's just i'm 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 putting that there the i is just an i on the on the page so the even the experience of writing is to some extent um impersonal or the process of writing it has a sort of depersonalizing effect that doesn't mean that the poems aren't deeply felt it doesn't mean that they don't reflect my interests that they don't reflect my anxieties that 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 the that they're that they're not feelings behind the poems that are coming up and the, and the, and that I don't have a personal stake in the poem but but I feel that that the art is itself transforming you know and, and takes me away from to some extent and and out of the self out of my own private thoughts and 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 private connections and this is part of the um part of why i think i'm particularly attracted to working in um forms um because those you get the feeling that you're working with something that's outside of you that kind of has a will of its own and and poems seem to decide that they're going to do something <laughs> and and i think well that's where the horse wants to go <laughs> and i and 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 i'm i'm going to let it run there so my own it, it does distance me some from from the personal element in the poem so i i feel i feel that there is there is some sort of safety and and protection in that art which doesn't mean was it one isn't nervous you know which doesn't mean when one finishes the poem and looks at it one goes one minute wow i'm great and then 
God, I'm awful. <laughs> Why do I think I'm doing this? <laughs> or you get up in front of an audience and suddenly you're, 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 you're ter- you, know, you, you feel anxious and nervous. Um, so one still has a personal stake in it. But, but I, I do think the, the art injects another element and that the art is larger than any single person who, who comes to it. And, and, and sometimes has a way of rescuing one when one, when one needs to be rescued. Thank you. Very interesting questions and illuminating answers. So thank you again, everyone, for coming. And thank you again for sharing your poetry and your thoughts. We're going to close with a few more poems, um, hopefully some more recitations, because that was really connective and wonderful. Um, but before that, I'd just like to um, encourage you all to hang around, talk to the poets more, and buy some books. Um, and also fill out, and which are back there with Shailene. Um, and if you have some time, also fill out an evaluation of the program and join our mailing list so you can hear about more great events. Um, so thank you again, and we'll hear some more. Thanks. Thank you. Should we reverse the order this time? Whatever you like. It doesn't matter. <coughs> you want to go last? I'll go. Sure. Okay. I'll, I'll. Thanks for those questions. Um, I'm just going to do one. Y'all have probably heard that Pluto is no longer a planet. A few years ago, a convention of astronomers got together and voted it out. This got me thinking about some other things that have been downgraded or demoted. I should probably say that the Ben Johnson mentioned in this poem is a disgraced Canadian sprinter, not the English Renaissance dramatist. And the other Johnson mentioned is Dr. Samuel Johnson, from whose life of Cowley I quoted a couple of points. Abraham Cowley was a poet. He was a contemporary of Milton's. He was regarded in his day as being the equal of Milton. This did not last. This is to Pluto upon its declassification. The word is out, you're out. The ninth of nine, perhaps we wanted nine, like lives or muses, no longer. Fundamentals, realign. You've been unchosen as the new rule chooses, declassified by analytic tools that say you're not the real thing, shown the door like doping medalists, or discredited schools stripped of status for having rigged the score, dropped from the rolls, kicked off the podium, banished to outer rings of history to orbit in perpetual odium or frigid wastes of pure obscurity, except you never committed any wrong. You are the frozen sphere you always were before discovery, hurtling along, even in telescopes, you're just a blur. Your odd elliptical trajectory, highly eccentric, the same brown icy ball out in the Kuiper Belt's zone of debris, luminous for your size, but very small by planetary standards, which apply no longer. We'll redesign the orreries, the planetaria, 
The naked eye won't miss you among all it never sees. But will you miss the dazzling company, lavish, ambrosial, on Olympian heights of Neptune, Jupiter, and Mercury, downgraded to hang out with lesser lights like Xena, Orcus, Maki Maki, Eris, and Karen, your faithful binary system moon? How can a cosmic bum's rush not embarrass? Who else will get reclassified? How soon? And do we think such slights of category will free us from dark thoughts of the underworld, of subterranean levirotatory landscapes where the murky waters swirl by deep riptides and emit a noxious mist, where Sisyphus keeps slipping in the muck and scattered like brittle leaves, like windswept grist, the darkling soul's lament, eternally stuck on the wrong side of Akron or Styx. The arguments are over. The die is cast like votes at a convention, and the fix approved and in. You're out, no longer last, and join the lengthening list of the demoted, the cast-off, airbrushed out, and sent back down, the deanthologized, no longer noted inhabitants of nowhere, a ghost town, Ben Johnson, Harold Stassen, the Aral Sea, Pomerania, Steam, Hanno the Great, the mineral kingdom of taxonomy, and too many poets to enumerate, like Abraham Cowley, famous for being forgotten, once thought the peer of Milton, who admired him, whose learned puerilities and misbegotten pindaric cucumbers to what inspired him, displayed his lax and lawless versification, his negligence of diction, all the flaws exposed in Johnson's firm consideration, which exiled and preserved him. The harsh laws art yields to over time, massive attrition, survival of the fewest, raise and burn, position most of us in worse position. Period pieces crack, the worm does turn, while he still circles somewhere, scarcely red, tracing his faint ellipsis in the stark, chill nether regions of the all-but-dead, abysmal vacuums of Plutonian dark. Thank you. Thank you again for, for coming. Um, thank you for having us. Um, and uh, it's such a pleasure to read with Joe, um, who's, um, you know, who's really become kind of a model to me uh, 
of a model to me of what a poet should be. And so it's really um, a pleasure to share the stage with him. Um, I have grew up in Toronto and have been living in um, the United States for 14 years now, mostly trying to pass as American. Uh, and so um, I have always kind of, for most of the time that I've been living here, I've regarded my Canadianness as kind of an embarrassment. Um, uh, but it's begun creeping into my poetry. Uh, again, like fatherhood, something that I didn't, not really a welcome presence. Uh, but, I, um, um, but I have felt that I had to come to terms with it. Um, so it's a little bit in this poem. Uh, a newer poem called um, Ode to an Encyclopedia. Oh, hefty hardcover on the built-in shelf in my parents' living room. Oh, authority on linen paper, questing beast of blue and gold. You were my companion on beige afternoons that came slanting through the curtain behind the rough upholstered chair. You knew how to trim a sail, how the hornet builds a hive. You had a topographical map of the mountain ranges on the far side of the moon and could name the man who shot down the man who murdered Jesse James. At 40, I tell myself that boyhood was all enchantment, hanging around the railway, getting plastered on cartoons, I see my best friend's father smiling benignly at his son and me from above a gin and tonic or sitting astride his roof with carpentry nails and hammer going at some problem that kept resisting all his mending. Oh, my tome, my paper brother, my narrative without an ending. You had a diagram of a cow broken down into the major cuts of beef and an image of the Trevi Fountain. The boarding house, the church on the corner, all that stuff is gone. In winter, in Toronto, people say, a man goes outside and shovels snow, mostly so that his neighbors know just how much snow he is displacing. I'm writing this in Baltimore. For such a long time, the boy wants to grow up and be at large. But posture becomes bearing. Bearing becomes shape. A man can make a choice between two countries, believing all the while that he will never have to choose. And uh, the other poem, thank you. Um, thank you. That's, that's the first time I've recited that one in public. Um, the other one is called uh, Talking Song, and this will be my last, my last uh, poem of the evening. Um, now that my work's... Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. It's not called Talking Song. I recently retitled it. Uh, <laughs> it's called Walking and Talking. <laughs> now that my work's done, and it's Saturday, now that my young son is out somewhere with his mom, I might as well roam all morning spying on the filthy squirrels and on the shapes that disintegrating leaves have painted on the sidewalk. I might as well spend the morning talking to myself, 
hoping for meaning and unmeaning to braid and begin teaching me what to say. Some days I feel like a monarch at wing, meandering, not really deciding where I go, as programmed as the stubborn birds building nests of twigs and spit. Each bird pipes the song that it was taught and transmits the song to its own offspring. Earthworms driven up by last night's rain have squirmed onto the asphalt to slowly fry. I save some who glue and wriggle. But there are so many, and they almost seem to want to die. Day by day, I'm feeling my way into fatherhood. I'm trying to see what is this thing, this boy to me and I to him, my kin, my kid, an eight-toothed homunculus clutching an acorn in his fist, bewildered that a paper plate set down on the grass on a windy day won't stay put but lofts and spins away. By the time I'm downtown, I'm turning back, in thought, if not yet with my feet. Before I'm back on my own street, I'll have twice walked by the little wedge of ground where people of this neighborhood bury their dead dogs and cats. A rawhide bone, a ball of yarn, waterlogged by the frowsy rain. Animals have never meant very much to me but I've got them on the brain these days. How magnetic navigation brings spawning salmon home. How predation, variation, and the winnowing down of things gave shape to a world of species, giving them gills, wings, and feet. But I'd rather be dead than be a creature of any other kind. I walk upright, practicing the song of my species by speaking. Thank you.